and welcome to Here We Stand. I'm your regular host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Johnny Cash, thank you, brother. Today on our show, you could call it a show about judgment. And by that, I don't mean some divine wrath coming down from that father figure we like to project into the sky. I'm talking about the judgment that is the result, the consequence of our own choices as a people, as individuals. In the Republic of Canada movement, we are uh, the result of a long evolution, a struggle over many years of the most targeted and oppressed people to confront the genocide in Canada on behalf of the children that are still lying in the ground at the hands of the Catholic United Anglican Churches, the Government of Canada, the Vatican, the Queen of England, all of those people who we indicted in common law court trials that led legally and morally to the need to establish a separate sovereign jurisdiction so that we, the people, do not have to have our hands or lives soiled any longer by an association with something that we ourselves created and paid for. And the COVID police state that we struggle against now came from us. It was a result of the evolution of our society that we profited from, that we're still profiting from. And so really when we start pointing fingers, we realize the fingers have to be pointed first at ourselves. And that's what real spiritual cleansing is about not just political agitation, but at a deep, deeper level, understanding that we ourselves are part of the problem, and only by dying to what we knew in ourselves and around us can we be fit for something new. Well, in that regard, today we're going to be looking at a number of things, uh, including recent history within the Republic movement. And it's interesting, over the last little while, the, we found an interesting evolution as we worked over the last year trying to establish republic assemblies. We, as you know from previous discussions, we've set up in a very short period of time nearly 40 of these assemblies across Canada. Enormous response and enthusiasm, greater than any of the campaigns we've ever done. You can follow some of that history, murderbydecree.com, republicofkanata.ca. But we discovered in the course of that that forming an assembly, getting 12 people to send a charter, saying we're no longer part of this criminal Canadian jurisdiction of the Crown, that allowed a lot of different people in. And by that, I don't mean simply people come, you know, coming in to disrupt, which happened all over, but people with very different degrees of consciousness, commitment, and the things fell apart very quickly because there wasn't a solid core leadership. I like in an analogy in history, um, which I love, of course, one of the antecedents to our whole struggle here was those brief 11 years in England in the 1600s when there was a republic, when the Cromwellian Puritan Republic overthrew the crown, destroyed monarchy and the House of Lords, and cut all ties with the Vatican, reestablished the rule of the people through the commons, parliament. And in those 11 years, what happened was very significant, because when the first battles began against the king's army, the Puritan forces and the parliamentary forces lost a lot of the battles because they weren't professional like the force they were facing. And so it was interesting, um, uh, Oliver Cromwell and Thomas Harrison, two of the leaders of the, of the parliamentary army, went off and they said, we need a new kind of army. We've got to be more professional, more disciplined, and most importantly, we had to be led by a vision. And they set up what was called the New Model Army. And this was an army really of... It, it, they really have uh, devout, spiritually devout warriors who are committed to bringing down monarchy because it was against the biblical teaching that God alone is sovereign, but also in order to establish a republic, they had to be led by people of heart and mind and not conscripts who would run away at the first shot, which is what's been happening across Canada for the last year. A lot of people have scattered in fear misinformation, smear campaigns, the usual weapons they aim at us. And that New Model Army went on to conquer the king and establish the republic because they were professionally organized. And it's interesting, one of the things they produced was the soldier's catechism, it was called. It's like spiritual principles guiding the soldiers in the parliamentary army. And it said the three most important aspects or qualities of a soldier in the Revolutionary Army were first, to be godly, second, courageous, and thirdly, skilled in war. And I found that interesting. It was the substance of the man or woman that mattered first, the godliness committed in a courageous way to the struggle. And then only after that, 
Do they have to be skilled? Because, of course, skills are learned in the course of one's life, in the course of battles. And that's what we're lacking today. We are lacking those people who are committed in their heart and mind to the very end for this. I remembered a quote from Thomas Paine um, at the low point of the American Revolution, the one who wrote Common Sense. It really rallied the spirits of the flagging Revolutionary Army in America. And he wrote, an army of principles can penetrate where an army of soldiers cannot. For the truth is infectious, and all that it asks is the liberty to appear in lives starved of truth. And that's what we find, that when we start from the high ground of talking about our vision for Kanata, the need to commit everything in our life, because we know our lives depend on this, up against this COVID police state, there is no going back to a the world we knew, it's over. There's a new society that's been inaugurated. And in the second half of the show, after a short uh, break where I'm going to do a previous reflection, which we're going to play, which is quite relevant to what we're talking about, in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about contents of, from my latest book called Memoirs of a Revolutionary, where I look over the last 50 years of my own political activism, what's happened in the world over the last half century? How has it evolved? What is pol- What is its politics and economy like now compared to before, and why there's no going back, why we're in a new kind of society called a corporatocracy. And so we're going to get into that in the second half of the show. But just updates for people within the Republic movement. As you know from previous uh, broadcasts, the National Council of the Republic is organizing the first national constitutional convention to establish a republic in Canada. It's going to be in Vancouver between July 1st and 4th. Now, we have five days left, as you all, all of you know in your local cells and assemblies. You have five days left to get amendments to the national office, amendments to the Constitution, which have been circulating for over three months. Those amendments can be sent to Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. All of your amendments will be included in the convention material that will be circulated to you. Any sworn citizen can be a delegate, either physically in Vancouver, July 1st to 4th this year, or by Zoom link that we'll be setting up all over Canada. And um, prior to that, during May and June, we plan to have a number of teach-ins in which we're going to be sharing the evidence of our recent investigations on the West Coast, things you heard about in last week's show. And don't forget, for new listeners, you can listen to all of our archived programs and at bbsradio.com slash stand. Last week, you'll hear some of the hard evidence indicting the top Canadian politicians for crimes against humanity, treasonous acts with the Chinese government. Uh, and that's, of course, one of the reasons they've been going after yours truly with fake COVID isolation orders, which we have navigated around. And that's another example of how when you confront people with their lies, especially when they're in power, they tend to back off. Their weapons is largely uh, depends on our own fear and ignorance. So we've shown in practice how we can beat that back. And uh, final point is um, the whole direction we're going now, as I mentioned, evolving from the assemblies. One of the ways that we countered the falling apart of the first attempt at our assemblies was who created smaller cell groups of three to four people who were acquainted. They became acquainted with the principles of the Republic. And again, you should go to the website republicofcanada.ca for those principles on that vision. But these small, small, uh, small cell groups get together, acquaint each other with their policies and principles, start to take action together. Once they're familiar and they trust each other, those cell groups can then form an assembly. But even the next step, we find even those cell groups are prone to attack and infiltration, as happened dramatically recently on the West Coast, where one of the local Vancouver cell groups was obliterated from the inside out. And people who had been working with us faithfully, literally two days after our most recent meeting started, attacking me and the Republic National Council, circulating the usual lies that have been around for many years. And um, I'll mention that a bit later. But it's, it, it's an example of even our small cell groups can be infiltrated. That makes it all the more necessary to identify and establish the remnant, those people who are devoted, genuine, brave souls who are not going to be turned away, who own their own minds. And that's one of the problems in this work is that many people get into the campaign thinking they want to govern themselves, but not being able to govern their own minds, and hence can be turned very easily. So we're going to uh, talk about that in a little bit. And um, a final point on on just kind of the business end of things here. 
Um, in order to become a citizen, you'd simply go to that website, republicofcanada.ca. There's a pledge of citizenship you can take there. You write to Republic National Council at protonmail.com. You'll then be linked up with a local cell group or organizer wherever you are. And the initiative then lies with you to take action and not wait, because this is a movement of self-liberation and collective liberation. Okay, what we're going to do next is, as more of a background to this, um, we are talking very much of spiritual matters. We're talking about judgment. Um, I did a uh, reflection in November 2019, which is called uh, Extinction and Beyond. Do we deserve freedom and survival? And it's going to be prepare us for the next part of our discussion in the second half of the show, in which we're talking about the things that we can't see, which are very much behind a lot of the, the uh, phenomenon going on. We wage a battle not just against flesh and blood, but against what is called principalities and powers, the spiritual realm. And I'm going to lead into that with this reflection, which we're going to play now. So we'll be back after that with more. Hello, everyone. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice, back with you again. My reflection today is the first in a series of sermons I'm actually giving as part of a movement called the Covenanters. Now, we're a spiritual and political separatist movement set up in 2017. It was established as a covenanted jurisdiction under the law of God, a separatist political and spiritual movement outside and opposed to the fallen satanic world system we're in. Now, the Covenanters exist in order to call out from that world and its false religions a remnant of Christ-centered people who are witnesses to the new creation. We are the spiritual arm of the common law republic movement, and we work to establish godly communities on the land under divine jurisdiction. You can read more about our vision and program at a book called Here We Stand, Summoning God's People in a Time of Judgment. You can contact us at congregationalcovenant at gmail.com. According to God's plan, amen. Now the sermon today is part of a series called God's Revolution, a radical reading of scripture for refugees from false religion. This is for the upcoming first Sunday in Advent, December 1st, 2019, and the gospel reading for that day is Matthew chapter 24. The theme is judgment is near. Well, thinking about this, I was tempted to write a synopsis of the whole thing in a couple of sentences, and that synopsis is, just when we had our Sunday hymnals and halos neatly arranged, the good news turns out to be bad. Divine judgment means exactly what it says. That's all, folks. Well, you may have noticed a global protest movement called Extinction Rebellion. It's hard not to notice it, considering the instant mass media coverage it's secured for its well-funded hysteria concerning so-called global warming in the end of the world. It's a youth-led movement, and it's also fear-driven. Its main slogan is, we're terrified. Well, to these aging eyes, Extinction Rebellion is a strange hearkening back to the climate in the 1980s, when a renewed arms race and Cold War had my youthful generation convinced that we too were heading for extinction, but at the hands of a sudden nuclear Armageddon. I guess for that matter, I could also compare the Extinction Rebels to the European Christians of the year 1000, who actively prepared for the end of the world and the return of Christ. Millenarian extinction thinking is as old as the Bible, and it's inherent in our Bible-derived culture. It's as inherent as our fear of punishment from an all-powerful authority. Perhaps that's why the Extinction Rebels are not very rebelliously calling on people to simply lobby their own governments to stop climate change and save the world. Well, the end of the world is also the subject of today's Gospel reading, taken, as I said, from Matthew chapter 24. The scene is set in Jerusalem. Jesus is there with all of his disciples, and he's chatting with the boys who are overawed by the size and the majesty of the temple in Jerusalem. Ironically, Jesus says to them, You see all this grandeur that impresses you so much? Well, it's all going to come down. Bible scholars usually claim he's prophesying and foreseeing the future destruction of the temple in all of Jerusalem in the year 66 AD by three Roman legions. But there's a lot more to it than that. Jesus is actually forecasting an impending disaster for all of humanity. 
He goes on to describe to his disciples the signs of the coming of the end of the world. You will hear wars and rumors of war. Nation shall rise against nation. There shall be famine, sickness, earthquakes. And then he rains on their parade even more by telling his disciples that, no, they're not going to be honored. They're actually going to be vilified and hated by everyone. They're going to be arrested and killed by the authorities. And betrayal and false prophecy and the growing cold of love is going to characterize the human race. In other words, everything and everyone is going to fall apart. Well, in the face of this announcement and this bad news, Jesus has some very real and personal advice to his followers. He tells them that if they endure through to the end, despite all of this collapse, they'll be saved. But first they have to flee. They have to get out of the cities, flee to the mountains, not tomorrow, but today, immediately. Don't stop for anything. Don't do anything. Just go now. Because nothing can save your world. Most important, they're not to be fooled by anyone, not by any false prophets or experts. Because extinction is coming, not later, but very soon, although no one can know exactly the hour or the day. The sun will grow dark, the stars and the moon will fall, and the heavens will be shaken. And, in Jesus' words, the cosmos will be extinguished. Now, the cosmos is a Greek word meaning the world, but it also, in a broader sense, means everything and everyone anywhere. That'll be gone. Well, this personal advice from Jesus is for a reason. He tells them, It won't be the end for everyone, because he, in fact, is going to return and gather the ones he has chosen, a few people he calls his elect, whom he will redeem, and then together with them, they're going to build something he calls the kingdom of heaven, a new reality altogether. Now, he always goes on about this kingdom of heaven, at least in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's the focus of his preaching and his message, the kingdom of heaven. It's an expression we have in English, but it was translated from the Greek words basileia, Taltheo, which means the fortress of the Almighty. But if you go back to Jesus' own Aramaic language, it actually meant the realm of eternity. In other words, that moment when God is finally reunited with the human race, made one, when heaven and earth are joined. That's the essence of the Matthew 24 message. The world and all those in it are will be destroyed and replaced by a new harmonious existence, seated by a few pure, redeemed souls, a new world, a new creation. Well, obviously there's nothing to protest or rebel against. It's all ordained. It's predestined to happen. It's a done deal. All people can do is to get out of that system now, pray they're worthy enough to be chosen from the new world by cleansing their minds and their lives. But that decision ultimately isn't on their hands. You you can't achieve it by your own effort, by your works. The only way that's going to happen is through the free choice and grace of the mystery that we call God. Well, when you step back from it and think about it, that's a pretty strange message with which to begin the official Christian year, which, like I say, starts this Sunday, December 1st, the first week in Advent. Actually, nothing, ironically, from this message from Matthew 24 is going to be heard this Sunday in Christian churches. Instead, what they're going to be fed is a nicer edited snippet at the end of chapter 24. And that's all they're going to be hearing. The verses that say nothing about destruction and ending. Surprised? The lectionary gospel reading contains, for this Sunday, contains only verses 36 to 44, which are really just a brief P.S. that urges people to be faithful and stay alert in order to receive Jesus. Like some autocratic medieval pope, the church leaders will allow their people to hear only that sanitized version of Matthew 24. None of the cataclysmic stuff. No doubt the church guys want to reassure the donors in the pews with a comfy message rather than all this talk about the end of the world. But you can see how easy it is for the church to distort and censor the truth, not only about their own crimes, but about the divine message itself, the divine truth. Well, you know, for a long time, and especially during my perdition years in seminary, I could never figure out this thing called the Christian lectionary, those officially approved Bible readings for each Sunday, plucked randomly out of scripture by some clerical bright boy. If you want to understand the Bible, obviously the thing to do is to plow right through it, book by book, chapter by chapter. Then you get the overview. That approach, of course, would require taking scripture devoutly, 
and seriously, on its terms rather than our own, which means selectively, the things that fit us and our mood. In fact, even the most religious people, and especially them, use the Bible for their own ends. Like any corporation, the church's bottom line has always been self-maintenance, not truthfulness. And so it's hardly surprising that this cataclysmic message today, the collapse of the temple, has been castrated and reshaped into some blithe advice that makes the end times almost seem palatable. After all, I guess, what's the frigging point of anything, let alone funding a church, when a final judgment and ending is about to descend on all of us? Better instead to begin with an upbeat, positive message for all those tithe-givers who keep today's temple running and themselves primed from the <laughs> for the approaching mammon orgy called Christmas. It's like one of my theology profs at the Vancouver School of Theology advised our first-year class of credulous seminarians when he said, Like it or not, your job as clergy will be to maintain the church first and worry about everything else second. I love it. I love these admissions. Church first, God second. Well, some things never change, especially in Christendom. Christendom and dumber. In the same way that Canadian church lawyers spun the Christian mass murder of Indian residential school children into a few mild cases of abuse, this Sunday the faithful flocks will be reassured by the modified reading that a final judgment will never happen to them. Instead, they can make it through Armageddon if they just stay alert and wait for Jesus. Of course, whether staying alert simply means to not doze off during prayer time or something more than that, it, that's never really explained. But one can't be too specific when it comes to messages or massages for the pew-sitters. Okay, I hear you saying, Well, big surprise, Kev, the real biblical message has once again been edited down to nothing by the official Christians in order to suit themselves. Hypocrites won, God nothing, right? Well, in fact, none of that matters ultimately because the Bible isn't about humanity. It's not about us at all. It's about the eternal it's about something my early Protestant ancestors called the sovereignty of God. And that's really what's at the heart of the complete spiritual message in today's reading from Matthew 24. People aren't in charge at all. God is. And God's way is not our way. Well, that's a reality not obvious to many of us because we're numb to the truth since the truth has been entombed in convention for so long. God's status as number one is sim it's something everyone pays routine lip service to. It's an abstract lip service. And not just in church. Even the Canadian politicians do it. The Canadian Constitution boasts that the country is founded on, quote, principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Hmm, I guess I missed something there. Well, in practice, God is treated by his alleged followers like the doddering grandfather at the far end of the dinner table, who everyone pretends to respect, but in fact treats with a condescending indifference. That's why one can almost hear an ironic snicker in Jesus' voice when he announces in the full reading of Matthew 24, Hey, guess what, everyone? That old coot is about to kick over the entire dinner arrangement. The simple fact about today's gospel message is that God has decided to end everything. And that ending is going to hit us when we least expect it, when all of our arrangements seem fine and under control. If there's a single theme in the Bible, it's this. God holds sway over everything, including and especially the worldly powers, over every ruler, every government, every king, every pope, every church, and over all their laws. God is the only sovereign. And that fact makes every human ruler and institution a rival to God. And as such, it makes him a blasphemous power that cannot be obeyed or taken seriously by any godly person. We owe our allegiance to God, not to man. Well, even more difficult for worldly people to stomach is that God's sovereign governance is accompanied by an absolute liberty. God is free. God's free at any time to remake anything, any arrangement, any commandment, any religious dogma. We certainly can't Get enough proof of that. All you have to do is look in the Bible. Look at the freedom of God as displayed. When you look at the totality of the Bible, it's displayed in how God wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah in one moment. It's an irredeemable evil place. So God wipes it out in one moment, and then in the next, speaks about love and forgiveness. Well, if any of us did that, 
that kind of behavior would probably be called a dissociated neurosis of some kind. But divine justice has little, if anything, to do with human morality, any more than lightning chooses to strike only the evildoers. God's absolute freedom is not exactly good news for churchgoers who are perched in the pews on Sundays not for God on God's terms, but for God on theirs. There's a word for that. It's called idolatry. One example is I, I once asked my parishioners in Port Alberni during a Bible study class whether God would ever renege on his promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, people were shocked. They either were shocked into silence or they emitted a resounding, No, never! I responded, Well, why not? Something that's living always changes. Only a dead idol never changes. But my point eluded my congregants. They seem to know the mystery better than it knows itself. Of course, it's always been that way when it comes to religion and its practitioners. You have to reduce a living divine presence into an unchanging object that can be owned and managed. A living divine presence like God, whose nature can never be understood, never encapsulated, never represented by somebody or something, never manipulated. It's living. But the idolatry of reducing God to an object that we can control in our own minds is something that tendency is something Jesus continually confronted and challenged. He even did it violently in the temple in Jerusalem when he threw out the money changers. But he especially does it in today's reading in Matthew 24 when he blew apart the confident and idolatrous self-assurance of his disciples by announcing an impending divine judgment on God's terms, not on their own. Well, in the final analysis, there's nothing wrong with endings, especially the ending of that which is wrong, corrupted, or dying. But being raised in a culture that denies death and change and resists both, we usually become hysterical when we see our own ending approach. Like today's desperate extinction rebels who seem capable of just being terrified. But of course, fear is always the first stage of dying. It's followed closely by denial. Well, I see the same process at work all the time, whether it's at deathbeds or in our wider culture in Canada when I first exposed our homegrown genocide and war crimes. The reality is that we in this country have become the death that we've inflicted on so many others, and yet we fearfully deny the evidence in front of us and in us. Eventually, the truth won't be able to be dismissed anymore, and we'll have the opportunity to accept a higher truth, that our time as a sick and destructive society is over. The ending is on us now. All of the temples are falling and will fall. Well, the question remains, can something of the best in us survive the destruction that's upon us? Today's Gospel reading says, yes, possibly. But that choice is not in our hands. It never is. It's in God's. What matters for us is not surviving and being safe, but being true and remaining true. And that, of course, is the hidden and higher purpose behind every personal or group cataclysm. It allows us to come to know the truth and to be changed by it. Take it to heart. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you. Stay tuned. And we're back. Now, that was, of course, broadcast as a YouTube well before the COVID thing kicked in. And... Uh, it has even more relevance now, I would say. But that one thought, the idea, the recognition that things are over, that our time as a culture is over, is undeniable now. Now, I haven't had difficulty with that personally because I experienced that for many years. I knew from my own suffering, the loss of my family, the loss of everything in my life, because I had started to unopen the graves of the church's little victims. I knew that a society that corrupted would crush people who even talked about the truth, was not worth supporting, was not being worth being part of anymore. But I want to use that reflection as a segue from what I was talking about in the first part of the show, that is, the effort, the struggle to embody our highest values in something called a republic, something which is really not for everybody. You know, we had this idea originally that, well, yeah, Canadians can leave the old jurisdiction, and, and once they're aware enough, and brave enough, they can sever ties and become part of a new republic. But as John Adams said during their own constitutional convention in America, he said, a republic cannot survive unless its people are virtuous. 
That is, that they're not looking just after themselves, which is how we're all raised to think in this sick culture. And we need a new man and woman step forward. Out of our, our own lives, people who are able to sacrifice and think of others and not themselves, those are the ones who endure in this long struggle. And I want to segue into that because, as was mentioned, I am part of something called the Covenanters, and it was established on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in October 2017. What it is, it's a spiritual movement, which is really the arm of the public common law movement, and it's named after a historical movement of my ancestors in Scotland, when they, in the 1600s, they broke away from not only the crown of England, but the papacy, established their own self-governing churches. And it was interesting, because those are the people who, by and large, went on to seed the American Revolution, the first society in history ever to say that the people could govern themselves. Well, why could people govern themselves? Because they first understood that they had a personal relationship with God through Christ, and their own congregations, not through a bishop, not through a pope, not through some authority telling them what to believe or think. And though many of those Scots-Irish settlers came to Middle America, and it's interesting, over quite amazing figure, over half the soldiers in the U.S. Continental Army in the Revolutionary War were Scots-Irish from that Covenanter tradition. The Covenanters took up arms literally against the King of England and the Pope, and... Um, you know, fought for that spiritual independence that led eventually to personal and political independence in America and elsewhere. That covenant of movement, that's exactly what they're trying to do. We recognize that there's a need for a spiritual and a moral foundation for what we do. And we haven't emphasized that enough in the last year. And as a result, our work has fallen apart a lot easier than it would have if the people we brought into the movement were already imbued with that inner fire, that recognition that no matter what you call it, we are establishing a remnant, a spiritual remnant, who stand apart from the satanic world order. And more and more of us, I believe, are waking up, or at least those who were predestined to, be, to wake up, to the reality that this world is run by satanic forces. You just have to go and look at the mass grave outside any former residential school and how every single person who did those crimes got away with it while patting themselves on the back and going to church the next day that's proof enough to me and to any thinking and feeling person that we live in a satanic order. The question is, you can't replace that without that inner rejuvenation. Now, that's a tricky question, because people in our culture today think, well, first, because we've been raised to think individualistically, first we kind of get it together as an individual, and then we go out and do the political changes. It's not like that. It's more like a double helix. It's intertwined, the reality the political and the spiritual, the persons, all interwined. For example, you can often get to that spiritual awareness by fighting in the world for what's right for a long time and recognizing the limitations of doing that. So we can come to this from different means. But I want to lead into a discussion that tries to bring all these themes together for those of you who are meant to hear this and to carry this on. And I want to read from a number of things, well, not read, but just refer to the content of this latest book I wrote, which you can find online at Amazon, it's called Memoirs of a Revolutionary. And it's a bit of an incomplete title because it's not simply a memoir. It's really a reflection of what's gone on in the world over the last 50 years. How did this thing called a corporatocracy come about in the first place? Well, what the corporatocracy is, it's really a system called corporatism. And as the political economic system was actually pioneered by the Nazis and by Mussolini during the 1920s and 30s. And there was a response to the economic collapse that happened all over the world after World War I that really gave rise to what's called monopoly capitalism, the system today where the biggest economies in the world aren't nations but corporations. And what this corporatist model did was it took big money and infused it with the state in order to crush democracy, civil liberties, anything independent. And it's interesting because it arose in Italy first under fascism, and it was based originally on Catholic social doctrine. That is, you know, the, one of the popes said, well, fascism is simply our principles put into political practice. And what it did, basically, it and the Nazis, it pioneered the system we have today, which is really a permanent war economy 
that dominates the world and this corporate system, which is so in place now, and here's a perfect example. Why are all the governments of the world walking lockstep in with this fake pandemic, with this obvious public health contrivance, which is justifying the, the creation of a police state globally? That's because the system was already in place. There were no separate national governments. It was already waiting in the wings, and now it's stepped out full-blown. So my, what my book does is traces how that happens economically and politically today. But before we get into more of that, we have to ask a more basic question, and that is, how do we see the world? And there's really two, and I talk about this in the book in the later part, and it really took looking at two different ways of, of looking at the world, and a realistic or an idealistic. And, um, you know, this you don't have to really go far to trace where this came from philosophically. It really came from Greek philosophy, at least in the West which is what we're dealing with. And, um, you know, it, it's basically the idea that idealists believe that your reality is created by your own mind. If you think something, it becomes real. Now, that is very in vogue these days. You hear it everywhere. You've got to think positively, then you have positive results. Um, you know, the, on the other hand, the realistic model says, no, reality isn't determined by what we think. It exists objectively and externally to our minds. Now, these two attitudes, it gives, leads you in two very different directions. The idealist tends to lead in a very religious direction, which divorces our inner life from the outer. A realistic uh, view philosophy leads to a hard kind of political route where it doesn't even take into account issues of higher mind, spirit, and everything. And those have, there's been kind of an unnatural division between those two. We're trying to integrate those now, those two views. But let's look at where they come from, and what does that all mean for us today? We can't really recover personal sovereignty. You know, we talk about, let's have political sovereignty, let's be self-governing, and then when people try to do it, they all tend to back off from the hard tasks of what that means, like what we've done, passing our own laws, saying the COVID measures are nullified. Okay, now we have to enforce those laws, and nobody wants to do it. That's been our experience over the last year or so. That happens because people haven't regained their own minds. They're still living in somebody else's mind, even though they don't think they are. They call themselves free and sovereign beings and awake, and yet they're still thinking with the mind of the system, the group mind, the overmind that says, no, if you go up against it, you're going to get hurt. Therefore, you can't go up against the system. And it's in order to recover our personal and political sovereignty in this totalized global tyranny we live within, you can't do it unless we reestablish a tradition of what's called philosophical realism. And I want to talk a little bit about that. And that was really the thinking that gave rise to the American and French revolutions. It comes out of a guy called Aristotle, who believed that, as I mentioned earlier, reality exists externally of us. It's an objective reality which we can experience and sense. It isn't coming about through, I have an idea that this is the way things are, therefore it becomes real. No, it's we can observe the actual world and the people in it come to our own experiences, our own conclusions based on our experiences and our senses, and know what is true. If you don't believe that, you can't really establish your own political sovereignty because you're always operating out of Plato, he's the other philosopher, the idealist philosopher Plato, who said, if you believe something enough, it becomes real because there's this, this kind of innate thing that existed in all of us that predated reality. And we can imagine that and therefore it comes into being. Well, that, as we know, is it doesn't necessarily have to lead in the direction of change at all. You can sit in your room and think, oh, I'm going to dream my new reality into being. Now, that's a perfect kind of mindset if you're raised in a corporate culture, atomized culture like ours, a consumerist culture like ours, where everyone just sits in front of their laptop and views reality from a screen, rather than, what happened to me today? Who did I encounter? What am I observing? And here's a classic example of this. When you go into the cyber world, there's this thing called a COVID disease, right? The so-called pandemic. It doesn't actually exist in the world. I've been going around for the last 13 months, people, in many different situations. I've worked on the streets in Vancouver. I've talked to people. I've never masked. I've never distanced. I've never changed my behavior. And I'm not sick. I never got sick. I've never met anyone who is sick with the flu or anything. I'm 65 now. I have bronchial asthma. I'm in the prime category of getting sick, and yet I'm not. 
So when I look at, through my realist Aristotelian mind, if you like, my looking at the world in a realistic way, I realize that COVID thing doesn't exist. I see no evidence for it. And yet when I go into the idealistic world and turn on the Internet and where anything can be real, anyone puts an idea up on the screen and it suddenly becomes the truth, in that idealistic world, there's this thing called a pandemic. But it's a cyber illusion. And you can only believe in that illusion if you're operating from an idealist mindset, whereas, oh, I see it on the screen, therefore it must be true. No, it's just words, just like when they pass a statute. A statute is just words. The law requiring that you mask or distance or quarantine or take the shot or whatever, those are just words. If you don't obey it, it doesn't become real. And so it's very important to recover that realistic mindset, because otherwise, if you don't, you can't take back power at all. Um, I, you probably know that one of my ancestors was a, um, a philosopher in England in the 1700s who challenged the dogma of the Church of England, Peter on it. He was put in prison for attacking um, various teachings of the Church and posting his opinion on broadsheets that he put all over the East End of London, and that got him thrown in prison when he was 70. But he wrote these wonderful words. He said, Virtue and reason alone are sufficient for our happiness. All passion, envy, lust, and ambitions that distract us from our higher mind are illusions that are foreign to our nature. And he was a Stoic. He was a realistic. He said, I know what is true from what I experience every day. And that manifested in the statement of John Adams at the Continental Congress when he said, there is no crown but that of reason, which the people themselves place upon their own heads. And think about that for a minute. We can know what's true. We can govern ourselves when we look at the world through our own eyes, our own experience, and know what is true. And that's the way I grew up, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. We didn't have computers. We didn't have all of these distractions. We would put up a poster for a meeting, and 200 people would show up. And we would talk about our experiences that day, what we encountered, and we knew each other face-to-face, not as words on a screen, but face-to-face. We understood from our own experience what was true, and that gave us the courage and the community together to act on it and make change. You knew your back was covered. You don't in this modern culture because it's a completely idealistically based, really cyber world of illusion. And you can't have a self-governing republic unless people own their own minds. And you can only do that with a realistic philosophy about life. Well, I hope I've undoubtedly offended some of you, but that's good. Write me, thecommonlandedgmail.com. Let me know what you think. All fraud, imposition, and tyranny flees before the dawn of the light of reason. A man who, through his own, or woman who, through their own senses, perceives the truth of their condition, has found the means to change it. Well... That's common sense, people. Common sense is the basic of co- basis of common law. And that, you know, is really the foundation of a lot of what we do in the Republic. Now, one other part of my book I do want to mention to you is having to do with the, the content of what we mean by the corporatocracy, why it's different now, how it's changed. And I want to go back a little bit to the start of the book. And we talk about I, 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 the way what I do in the book, and I really urge you to get this because it's really a kind of a microcosm of the last 50 years and how we've gotten to this parlous state we're in right now. And I break up the uh, the timeline, the first part of the book, as I look at different decades, uh, the 20th and 21st centuries. And um, the first part is I'm just getting to it right now. The um, let me just read a quote. There was a thing in our system which stabilized it for many years. It was called the permanent arms economy. And let me just give you a quote from a guy called Michael Kidron. And he said, the longest boom in the history of capitalism is ending. He wrote this in 1971. Fueled by a permanent global arms economy, the post-war prosperity of the system is ending as overproduction is triggering hyperinflation and a new recession. Capitalism is returning like an untreated psychopath to its classic pattern of boom and bust. Short of a revolution, this looming crisis, and here's the key word, this looming crisis can be averted by massive intervention by the state 
on a scale hitherto unimagined. A global corporate oligarchy may be the system's only recourse in the years ahead. And what he's talking about that, he was predicting the corporate oligarchy right there. He said capitalism by its nature is continually expanding, trying to grab markets, grab resources, reducing human beings to components of the machine. And, and you know, in the, in the fight between the people who work for the system and those who own it, those who own it tend to win out all the time because the laws serve them. And in that system, the, the human component of it, the labor, the, the, the ideas, the people who make the system run, they get increasingly marginalized by automation, mechanization, all of that. And as a result, the human aspect is replaced by machine. The way I put it in the book, homo sapiens gets replaced by homo machina, machine components. Now think of everything that's been going on in the technology over the last 30 years. It's all designed to reduce our minds to think and act functionally. That's what, uh, when you look at the effect of the Internet and iPads and that on this generation, I remember there was a, a chilling interview I read with a, a teacher. He was an anthropologist and a public school teacher in New York. And just a few years ago, he sat down with a group of kindergarten children and asked them, what did they daydream about? And they and teenagers who we also spoke to didn't have any idea what he was talking about when he said daydream, imagine. Because their minds are being shaped into a functional, analytical part of their brain. It's being totally dominated by that left brain analytical side, because that's the side of the brain that can be most easily controlled, our analytical side. What the system can't control is our imagination, our laughter, our music, our the creative aspects of the right brain that have been completely diminished. And it's interesting, um, John D. Rockefeller, when he restructured the American education system in the early part of the 20th century, something called the General Education Board, he started funding all the universities and schools and said, no, no, you've got to start teaching people practical skills, not philosophy, not the liberal arts, not how to think critically. No, he said, and here's a famous quote, I need workers who work, not think. And so sure enough, that's the end result we've had. People now today don't think because they don't know how to think. They can't critically look at something. And, you know, we see that all over all the time. This, the system says, put on a mask and suffocate yourself, and everybody does. Well, why? It isn't simply because of fear. It's because they don't know how to think differently. 90%, 85 to 90%, and this has been proven in psychology, 85 to 90% of people who read something either on the Internet or in a newspaper or when, anywhere, they will automatically believe it's true just because it's written down. They don't have the ability to critically judge it and say, well, who's writing that? What's their perspective? Is it true? It's like what we find in the smear campaign. People will say, oh, Kevin's lying. Kevin and I don't believe him. He's lying. And the first logical thing is to say, well, how do you know? What information do you have to refute his 25 years of work and proven you know, sacrifice and, and, and by his life example that these things are going on? What information do you have to counter that? People don't ask for the information. They just automatically go, oh, he must be lying. I guess it's true if somebody's saying that. That's because they don't know how to think critically. They've lost that ability. So all of this is relevant, you see, because it's how we think and what we're part of that determines whether we're able to take action. And over the last year, we've learned that, no, the present population in Canada or anywhere, really, they're not capable of self-governance yet. A small remnant is. And this is the message of today's show in summary, because we only got five minutes left or so. But the summary of today is that people aren't ready yet for self-governance. It was too ambitious to say we're going to set up a republic. We have to set the foundations more, first within ourselves. But when I say ourselves, I'm talking about the remnant, those of us who were set aside before we were born to do this work and be what's called Christ's called-out remnant, the people who are the seed of the new society. And that's interestingly how the Puritans and my ancestors in England and Scotland saw this, that the church of Christ is not the people. It's the called out what are called the saints in the Bible. And it's interesting, in the book of Revelation, they talk about a period where the beast appears, Satan, and the, the saints or the elect are wiped out almost. They're killed because they won't bow their knees to the 666 on the beast's head, the mark they are to receive, the things that we know now, you know, the microchipping, the, all these things that we're being prepared for psychologically. There's a remnant who say no to that, and according to the book of Revelation, they're going to be wiped out, but they're recovered, they're resurrected, 
in the time of what they call the, is the return of Christ, this spiritual renaissance that happens, as I mentioned in that sermon, totally through the sovereignty of God. And that's the idea that I want to leave us on. We talk about sovereignty. We use the word without understanding what it means. We are not sovereign people yet until we undergo that transformation of death and rebirth by which we, sovereign, to be sovereign means to govern yourself under no laws except your own. And in this case, by that law, we mean the law of nature, the law of God. So in closing, let me just say for today, and we're going to carry this on in weeks uh, in the future, in future shows, where we're going to have other people coming on who have understood this, who've gone through the same process, and who are going to be the delegates. I guess you could say the remnant population of our attempt to set up a republic and rebuild from on a stronger basis, the way Cromwell did with his new model army. What matters is not our numbers, but our core purity and professionalism, because it's only that remnant, that vanguard, who are going to lead the sluggish majority in their wake. We are not going to organize the majority of people into a republic. Most of them are going to fight us. There's a self-destruct mechanism in both people, because when you get too close to challenging the system that still owns their mind, they rebel against that. Most of the assemblies were taken down, not by outside infiltrators, but by the people themselves. They self-sabotaged their own assemblies. They shut them down. They attacked me. They attacked the people who were leading this whole thing because they were influenced to do that. By the, not only the outside influences, which are very real, but the influence, the cop in their own head, the influence that told them that, wait a minute, you're going to lose something if you go too far. The system yanked them back because they were still owned by it. If we're to change that, we have to start with that remnant who are aware, and not just aware inside their own mind, but engaging in the world and able to take these steps in the real world. We're trying to bring together these spiritual and political themes and messages in all the work we do. And this show is unique in that sense, because people tend to talk about one or the other, but never the two together, and that's a priority over the next while. Well, I'll rest my voice now. I'll let you guys listen to one of my favorite tunes on our way out of the show today, and that is Ballad of the Carpenter by Phil Oaks. Phil was a great folk singer in the 60s and 70s who was murdered in 1975, but his voice carries on, as does the example and spirit of Jesus and all of us who stand in the higher power, the higher direction of the new society according to God's law, the natural law. This is Kevin Andy, Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you for listening in. And don't forget, if you're new to the listening in or and part of our spiritual republic movement, go to murderbydecree.com. You can see all my books. And also, you go to Amazon, you'll look up the latest book under Kevin Annett, and that is Memoirs of a Revolutionary. And we have a lot of the discussion today that we've gone into in that book. And also, Republic of Kanata, that's K A N A T A, Republic of Kanata.ca. And that's um, where you find a lot of the practical, active work we're doing, including leading up to our first constitutional convention, July 1st to 4th in Vancouver. If you want to write to me personally, it's angelfire101 at protonmail.com. I thank you for today, folks. Enjoy the song. We'll be back next week. Stay strong, stay clear, and pure. <laughs>